join me, if you would, this morning in the book of Galatians, the fourth chapter. Galatians, chapter 4. Begin reading verse 1 and read through verse 7. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's Word. Father, now in this time, may your word bear abundant fruit in our lives. May we rejoice in what you grant us in this glorious salvation. Forgive us our ignorance, our blindness, our dullness. Open our eyes that we might see. For this we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been looking at our proposed confession of faith in our Sunday morning gatherings. We've considered Scripture, God, man, salvation, and justification. Now, some ask and have asked and may yet ask, why have you selected some things and not others? The fact is a confession of faith may be smaller than what we've proposed and it can also be larger So the question is always, how much is enough? Jonathan Lehman, in a little article entitled Confessions Thick or Thin, I think nails this quite well. How deep the doctrinal foundation of a confession should be and how thick the walls is a judgment call. You don't want a cardboard shack that topples with the slightest gust of heterodoxy false teaching. But nor do you need Fort Knox. So finding something in between, it is indeed a judgment call. You want enough to guard the gospel, to comfort and protect and inform the church, and to distinguish your church from other churches. If you get too detailed, you can end up narrowing the parameters of church membership more than you want, especially to allow folks to grow in their understanding. As we consider these elements, and we've considered salvation generally, justification, today we talk about adoption, we're going to talk about the free offer of the gospel coming up, Uh, we'll talk about election, we'll talk about several different aspects. Keep in mind that a confession is declaratory as to what we believe. It is not lined up to explain how those things happen and the order in which they happen, it is merely to give declaration 
This we affirm, this we believe. So we consider today the matter of adoption. Why is it that we've included this? Those of you who have looked and compared, notice that the New Hampshire Confession that we've loosely based our confession upon doesn't have an article on adoption. Well, let's explain that after I read the article to you. Listen to these words from our confession. We believe that those who have been justified freely by faith in Christ alone in and for the sake of Jesus Christ are partakers of the grace of adoption. They enjoy the liberties and privileges of children of God and have His name put on them. They receive the spirit of adoption and are granted access to the throne of grace. They are enabled to boldly cry, Abba, Father. Further, we believe they are shown mercy, protected, provided for, and disciplined by Him as Father, yet never abandoned. As heirs, they inherit the promises of everlasting salvation. Now, why did we feel compelled as your elders to include an article on adoption? Well, I'm going to sum up for my part why I considered this important by quoting from an Anglican. Is that acceptable? I know it depends on the Anglican, right? I think J.I. Packer is fairly safe on this. And I remember reading this the first time, at least for me, 40 plus years ago. From his book, Knowing God. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. I love that final sentence. Father is the Christian name for God. In an era when clear understanding of the gospel still appears to be lacking, and much preaching and teaching look more like good advice than good news. Affirming another objective reality of what Christ has done for His people is a gloriously good thing to emphasize once again. Now, I have acknowledged that I don't listen to a lot of Christian radio personally. I like to hear preachers, but my problem is when I'm listening to preachers and I'm trying to do other things, I have a hard time paying attention. I've heard of people who can multitask and do that. They're either really, really smart or they're deceiving themselves. I'm not sure how to do that. 
I don't listen to much of the popular Christian music on the radio. Now, on Sunday mornings, often I'll tune in to one of the local Christian radio stations to hear some, hopefully, worship music. But they all feel compelled to put in a little devotional thought. And even this morning as I was driving in, I was listening to something that I thought would have made a Roman Catholic priest in the 15 or 1600s proud. Um, about people getting freedom from the bondage to the sins and the griefs and the struggles they'd had. And so what this group did is they, they and I wasn't clear, I, I think they must have been water balloons. And they wrote on the outside of the balloon what it was that they needed freedom from, and then they threw it at a surface, like a canvas. Maybe they had paint in them. I didn't catch the whole thing. I'll admit, I wasn't paying close attention until I started hearing the actual writing down your sin, your grief, your pain on that and throwing it. And the commentary was this was so gloriously liberating and helpful for people. And I, it's embarrassing to shout at your radio when you're by yourself. So I refrained because people drive by and they look at you weird. And I want to say, how? How is this helpful? How is this liberating? How does this relate to the good news of the gospel? I don't get it. It's, in a sense, no different than going to visit relics and praying certain prayers and doing certain actions to somehow triumph over these things. My friends, what we need desperately is to see what Christ has done for us in spite of our failures, our mess-ups, and our fractured lives. Right? I I figure y'all came here today because you pretty much figured out you're a mess. Right? That you need help, and the help needs to be a rescue. We underestimate what the gospel does for us. What Paul tells us here is very clear. The Son of God makes us sons of God. Did you catch that? The Son of God makes us sons of God. That, my friend, is extraordinarily good news. How's this seem? First, in the reality of our bondage. Now, you remember, Paul, in writing to the Galatians, is trying to correct an error and a serious one, where they were trying to add something to the gospel of Christ. They were trying to add circumcision and keeping the law to the gospel of Christ and saying that not that these would be good things even to do, they were saying these are essential things to do. That is, if you do not do these things, you are not saved. Always beware of Jesus and. Always beware. If Jesus isn't enough, my friend, there's really not much good news to be had. 
Now he comes to this point, and I tell you, in so many ways, the, the book of Galatians is so helpful. Paul goes back to the Old Testament and he grabs things and he uses it and explains it. He'll talk about Abraham receiving a promise. And the promise was to his seed. And Paul makes the point in the third chapter, not to his seeds, plural, as in Israel, but to his seed, singular, and the seed is who? Jesus, the Christ. He'll talk about in this book as well that uh, those who are still under the law. He makes a comparison. and This had to be a staggering comparison to his Jewish audience. He said, you guys that want to be under the law are basically like Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael is the result of Abraham and Sarah trying to help God accomplish his work. And the consequences of that weren't good. He said, but those of us that are under the gospel of grace are like Sarah and Isaac because it was impossible that Sarah get pregnant and give birth. And yet the promise is fulfilled in Isaac. In Isaac shall thy seed be called or named. In these verses, Paul echoes something he says at the very end of that third chapter. You'll see some parallels in the text. He first points out the bondage under the law. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul uses the inheritance illustration primarily to illustrate the dire condition of the Galatians in their pre-Christian state. He's saying that they went from being slaves to sons of God. In that third chapter, as the apostle surveys the 2,000 years of Old Testament history, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus Christ, he's leading up to this fulfillment in Christ. And he's talking about the bondage. He says a child is under a guardian. Funny sounding word in the Greek text, the pedagogos. If you've ever come across the word pedagogy, if you've ever been involved in education, you have seen that terminology. It's about teaching. The pedagogos, the guardian, would be the one over an heir. Now you get the picture it has here. It doesn't matter if Junior is inheriting the whole thing. He is, till a certain age, in the Roman culture, no different than even a slave in the household. He has no power. He has no authority. There are those who are over him. In fact, this guardian at times would actually be a slave who is in charge of the upbringing, in many ways, of this son. The picture here is an illustration, and whether it's under the legal guardians of the law or under the dominion of these uh, elements that Paul speaks of in terms of the Galatians, it's really difficult to figure out all the we's and us's and you's. Paul gets a little loose, it seems like, in his pronouns. I'm not denying inerrancy, I'm just saying Paul isn't as concerned to make sure you know exactly which pronoun has which antecedent when he's writing this. And I think there's something helpful in that. While the law did specifically apply to Israel, if a Gentile converted to Judaism, the Lord would have placed them in under the law, right? 
because they'd have had to come in through Israel. They'd have been in the same covenant, Abrahamic and Mosaic. But even if they didn't, there's a basic reality here about our fallenness and how it affects how we think about God and salvation. That leads us to the next thing. It's not just bondage under the law. He calls it bondage under the elements, or the phrase that's used here, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's a really peculiar phrase, and I can't tell you how much has been written about this, trying to understand what it is Paul's talking about. I think Todd Wilson gets it right. Paul appears to be referring to the basic elements of the created order, the primordial powers at work in the world, which fallen human beings turn into idols and worship as gods. What are some of these basic elements in the created order? Let me give you three. You'll have a better understanding of what Paul's talking about. And I think he does this well. Money, sex, power. These are elementary principles of the world that are around us all the time. We can't avoid them. But more than that, they're incredibly powerful. So powerful, in fact, that sinful creatures like you and me are constantly tempted to turn them into idols and worship them as gods. Do you see that? So whether you're thinking about being under the law as the Jews were at the time of Christ's coming, or under the dominion of idolatries, enslavement to non-gods that we treat like gods, that's the state of every human being apart from the grace of God. I think Stott said it well. God intended the law to reveal sin and drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage there's no escape. So whether the basic elements were earth, water, air, and fire, as some have thought, or they're the idolatries of creatures, or they're powers like sex and money and status, or they're the misuse of the law of God, turning it into a means of salvation rather than a way of showing the need of forgiveness, all end in the same way all end in bondage. My friend, it doesn't matter if it shows up secular. It doesn't matter if it shows up religious. It doesn't matter how it shows up because all of us, without the liberating grace of God, find ourselves in bondage. We are by nature worshipers. It's hardwired into us. And we're going to find something to worship. And it'll cause us to skew the meaning of God's very word to satisfy us. It'll cause us to look at things in this world that are the good gifts of God and change them from being gifts into being saviors. Our idolatry and our bondage runs deep. The reality is there's bondage under the law and bondage under these elements. But from the realities of our bondage, Paul now speaks of the realities 
of our inheritance. Look at verse 4. The intentionality of the Lord's plan. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those. Now, when He says fullness of time, this phrase He uses in Ephesians 1, verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. Fullness of time. What does He mean by that? The time was ripe for the coming of Christ. Occasionally, you'll hear people theorize, well, what if Jesus had come at a different time? What if Jesus were to come today? What if he came at such and such time in history? My friend, Jesus came at exactly, precisely the right time. Don't have some notion that your ponderings and theories could somehow make this work out any better than it has. When the fullness of time had come. What did that mean? Well, it was a religious foundation. Israel had gone through captivity after captivity, had been scattered throughout the known world. They had developed the synagogue. The synagogue doesn't appear until Israel is scattered. They can no longer gather at temple. So they would have the synagogue, the gathering place. If they had at least 10 uh, adult Jewish men, they could found a synagogue. And in the synagogues, they would sing, they would read the Word, they would pray, they would hear the Word of God taught. In fact, much New Testament church worship actually reflects the worship of the synagogue. The fullness of time had come culturally. Alexander the Great in 350 B.C. triumphs over the known world, extends Greek language and culture to the entirety of the known world, and made it where there was a single understood language in the world, Koine or common commercial Greek. And it was politically the right time. Rome had done what nobody else had done. They had not only conquered the known world, they extended to the Roman civilization. They created a system of roads. I believe there were five or six roads that led directly from Rome to every part of the empire. And they created with it what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That didn't mean that travel was always safe, but for the most part, far safer than it had ever been. At that moment, when Israel has lost hope, when the Gentile world has seen the ascendancy of Rome but recognizes the hollowness of those triumphs, when there's a single language spoken throughout the entirety of that known world, when the ability to travel was at the apex of the ancient world, God sent His Son, don't waste your time pontificating about what might have been. Be astonished at what is. He sent His Son. Further, it established the Lord's work. The Father sent the Son. Christ is born not under the curse of the law, but under the obligations of the law. You see the distinction? He delighted in God's law. 
It only became a curse for him when he took our place. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, true humanity, born under the law, under its obligations, to redeem those under the law. The divinity of Christ, the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he couldn't have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he couldn't have redeemed an unrighteous man. And had he not been God's son, he could not have redeemed man for God or made them sons of God. He sends his son to redeem those under the law, to buy back to what end? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son. My friend, we are redeemed. We are adopted. God calls you His son. And by the way, that is not a gender-specific in terms of the people of God. In the ancient world, to be a son carried privileges that did not attend to being a daughter, but don't let that get in the way, ladies, of what you see here. What he's declaring is that all of us, rebellious, angry, running away rebels, <laughs> he has come and redeemed and adopted into his family. Now, we think about adoption today a little differently than it did then. In Rome, a fellow could adopt a man as a full-grown man to be his heir, a parent. That was entirely up to the one granting the gift. But folks, don't let that take away from you what you're seeing here. Todd Wilson, I mentioned before, shared this about an adoption in his life. When my wife and I adopted twins from Ethiopia, it was an extensive and intensive and indeed expensive process. They had to travel a remarkably long way to Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, where their boys lived. Once in that country, they had more work to do, and it wasn't always easy or straightforward. But imagine if my wife and I would knew, if we knew the only way to make this work was to send our firstborn son, Ezra, to Ethiopia to adopt our twins for us. And just imagine if we knew the only way we're going to be able to adopt Addis and Rager was to let Ezra be publicly executed while in Ethiopia. What if the only way to adopt our twins was to sacrifice our firstborn? Yet that precisely what the father did in sending his son into the world and onto the cross so that we might receive the full adoption of sons. The astonishing nature of this adoption is first of all a status, but it's not just a status. It's also a change of heart. 
the Spirit has been sent. And when the Spirit comes to the adopted children of God, our instinct is to cry out, Abba, Father. It is a supernatural instinct. Now, Abba, that's an Aramaic way of speaking of Father. Some say it means Daddy. That's probably a little too loose, but it's not too far off. You and I have been granted as the children of God, the Spirit of God, to cry out. One brother noted that a baby's cry matches its mother's language. Now, this is natural birth, naturally born children. But it's intriguing that a newborn child, just two or three days old, cries in a distinctive way, mimicking the sound of mom. And the research tends to bear this out. Each newborn has its own cry melody, a specific pattern of sounds, unique. Now, let's, we're not on that part yet, but folks, you do know that part of salvation is the new birth, right? So, the Spirit coming in, there's an adoption status, and we'll talk about regeneration later, but there's a change inwardly. And the glory of that change is the Spirit has been sent. When you say, Jesus lives in me, what you're saying, my friend, truly, theologically, is this. The Spirit of God has taken up residence inside of me. And that's true for every Christian. My goodness, what an impact this has on prayer life, doesn't it? Some of y'all are making this prayer thing way yonder too hard. Well, I ought to pray more. Yep. I won't argue. I'm not very good at it. There are no experts. Let me say that again. There are no experts on prayer. The Lord doesn't hand out degrees and advanced degrees and PhDs in prayer. You have been granted the status of an adopted son. And with that status, you have been granted the Holy Spirit. You see, God's children who are walking with the Lord don't gnash their teeth at their heavenly Father. Even when you receive a heavy blow in life, they don't, you don't curse the day you were born, much less curse the God who made you. You don't cry in the way the world does, blaming themselves or blaming others or blaming God, suffocating under a sense of guilt and shame or entitlement or redoubling your effort to work harder and get yourself out of the mess. God's children look to their heavenly Father in faith and cry out to Him, Abba, Father. We love Him because He first loved us. Christian, you're adopted. And that adoption is never, ever going to be revoked. You are his. Packer from that same book, the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to the holy God. And folks, was that not what you see in the Old Testament? How do you get near to God, right? And, and when we see that happen, 
king is I. I'm going to offer incense to the Lord. The priest said, no, no, don't do it. Don't get out of my way. I'm the king. Remember what happened? Breaks out in leprosy. And lived as a leper the rest of his life. <laughs> what about the lad who tries to steady the Ark of the Covenant because he's afraid he's going to fall, right? Moses? Because he thought his hand was cleaner than the ground in the sight of the holy God. He dies. God descends on Mount Sinai and speaks to the people. And what's their response? Everybody, oh, I want God to talk to me. I'd like to see your reaction at Sinai. What was the reaction of Israel? Don't let him talk to us anymore. You go talk to him. You, you come tell us what he said because we, we we'll die if he does that again. The stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to the Holy God, but on the boldness and confidence with which believers may approach Him. A boldness that springs directly from faith in Christ and from the knowledge of His saving work. Christian, justification is a change in legal status. You are declared righteous when you're not. Right? Doesn't change your nature, doesn't change anything, change your status. God, because of the righteousness of Christ assigned to you, punishing your sin in Christ, giving you Christ's righteousness, declares you not guilty. But salvation is even beyond that. He not only says you're not guilty, he says you're no longer a rebel, you're my son. That's why Paul makes such a big deal in Romans 8 that we are made co-heirs with Christ. What Christ receives, he receives on behalf of his people. We are not merely forgiven, which is the first essential to know. We are also accepted. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, witnessing to our sonship and prompting our prayers, is a precious privilege of God granted to his people God's your father he's not ashamed of you he protects you he cares for you oh Christian may we rejoice in the grandeur what we are granted. Let's pray. Hear these words from Ephesians as we pray. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. According to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth 
and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. My brothers and sisters, may we, by this kindness, rejoice in our adoption. Father, for those who don't know you today, I pray they have heard the call of the Spirit of God through the preaching of the Word of God and have been brought to saving faith. For believers, I pray, Father, that we rejoice in the gift granted us in being adopted into the family. May we live that reality in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with